the them and us could be you down the bottom and the, the them could be the management, the bosses, those above you, those who make decisions and they don't seem to be getting it right. It could be between the workers and the union uh, in church. It could even be different departments within a workplace that actually you're working on this side and they're working on that. Find it in um, the, 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 the kind of the man against the faceless bureaucracy and government and politics or the council who are doing something that, that maybe your local area is opposed to, your neighbours are opposed to. It could be even against other towns and places, them and us, those guys over there, they don't do, um, they're not on our side. And when you ever have a them and us situation, associated with it are feelings of hostility, of contempt for the, for the, um, for the them, um, there is a sense of competition, a sense of derision towards them, and a gross bias towards those who you perceive as the us on your side. Has anyone been in a situation like that where they can feel that kind of them and us situation? Yeah, quite a few of you have. I know I have. Times. It even happened to me strangely when I, I left sixth form college and went to university and a friend of mine in the same sixth form college left as well to go to university and we went to the same city to go to university. But we went to different universities. And we went from being us together in the same college in town to going to separate universities in the same city and suddenly he was one of the them because he went to the other place and he wasn't. I thought, I can't talk to you now. You go to the other place. And it was bizarre, but it literally just changed like that overnight. We, I went to one university, he went to the other and suddenly, oh, we don't like people who go to that university. And it's everywhere and it's silly. And what we're actually going to be looking at today is one of the, the big them and us situations that they were faced in the, uh, the early church. A huge situation where, where there was a them and an us and it was between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers and how God broke in there and made them and us into we together. And it was an awesome thing. And it isn't something that, that we can just sniff at because it was a huge cultural racial divide. But God, in his sovereign plan, in his, decided to bring those together. That was always his heart, to bring man together and to break through some of these walls and hostilities and divides. But before we get into that, we're just going to kind of go back for a little bit of a recap. We've been looking at this beginning section in Ephesians, uh, those verses 3 to 14, and we, we saw that this is one long sentence from the Apostle Paul. It is an outburst of praise that he has at God's wonderful plan. The theme of the entire passage is God's saving plan from eternity to eternity, and it has captured Paul's vision, and he is completely kind of overcome with it, and he just lets out this wonderful burst of praise for 11 verses, and just triumphs and shouts the wonderful blessings and praises of God, uh, praises in, in the past, the present, and the future of our salvation and God's wonderful plan. And we've been kind of going through it, and we're going to finish it off today with the very last section. But some of the things we've looked at and recapped though, so far is the fact that Paul was writing to a church in a city not too dissimilar from our own a large kind of cultural uh, centre, many, many people, lots of trade and traffic going through, but it was also a centre um, in terms of Ephesus of um, religiosity, uh, particularly in the worship of the goddess Diana. There was a lot of spirit spirituality. A lot of people were spiritual and religious, but not many of them worshipped the God of the Bible. Not many of them knew about Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. And Paul comes into that and preaches the message of salvation in Christ alone. And we live in a city like that, where if you look, it is, it is very plural. There are lots of world religions um, represented here. There's lots of spirituality, if you find it. And we're in 
we're bombarded in culture as well through all those areas. So it's a similar place. And God, um, Paul then writes into that truths of the Christian faith that these guys in Ephesus need to hold. Because if you look at the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters are all kind of a theology. The, rem- the following three chapters, 4, 5, and 6, are all practice. And Paul has written it in that way because what you think affects how you behave. What you think matters, and your thinking will affect your behavior. So wrong thinking leads to wrong behavior. Right thinking leads to right behavior. And so at the first sort of section of Ephesians, chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul is attacking thinking and laying out truth that we must understand as believers and that the readers of his letter must understand because this in turn will then affect how we act. And when Paul comes on to that, as we get to the the latter sections of Ephesians, he'll be talking about your practice, your behavior, but that is rooted in how you how you think. And Paul, in the, this beginning section, hits some major Christian doctrines and truths. The first one he looks at is the Trinity. The Trinity is shot through these verses. We have God the Father as the source and origin of our salvation. He is there and he is the one who has, through his divine purpose and will, has called men to himself to be saved. We see God the Son in Jesus, who is the one with the sphere in which we are saved. If we read that section, I think uh, Christ turns up 15 times his name, and then you think it's a further 11 if you count the in him kind of, which are references to Jesus. And so it's all summed up in Christ. So the Christian faith could be summed up in that one word, Jesus. That's who it's about, that's who we look to. And because we are in Christ, we receive all these blessings. And those blessings come, they are spiritual blessings, which we reference to the Holy Spirit. We find the Holy Spirit specifically re- referenced at the end of look at that today, but even at the beginning of the section we have spiritual blessings. So God the Trinity is shot through this, and this is a key doctrine for us as Christians. It sets us apart from cults and sects and others who would claim to be Christian, but actually if you don't worship God as Trinity, who is one God represented as three persons, Father, Son, Spirit, and each person fully and totally and completely God, you are straying from Orthodox Christianity. And some other faiths would just would acknowledge it, period. But there are many cults and sects who would try and acknowledge parts of it, but would deny one element of it. And one of the main ones they, do, uh, they would deny would be about Christ himself. They would say things like, oh, he wasn't uh, there with the Father in the beginning, although it clearly states that at the beginning of John. Um, actually, they would try and say he was something less than God the Father, when actually he is co-equal, co-eternal, co-existence with God the Father. Uh, and some would remove the spirit to some kind of power, some force akin to maybe you know, Star Wars or something. But actually he is personal and he is God the Holy Spirit. Um, and so we have the Trinity shot through there. Then as Paul goes through, he, he, he starts listing blessings and benefits we have in Christ. first one we looked at was election. That actually we have been chosen by God before the foundation of the world to be his children, to be pulled into his family. And because we were chosen before the world began, it couldn't be based on our merit. It couldn't be based on anything we've done. It couldn't be based because we're good, nice people and God really should save us. It's actually God chose his initiative. We are in him because he chose us, not based on anything we've done, but only on his grace, which is a wonderful, releasing, freeing thing because it means we've got nothing to earn and nothing to prove because God's already chosen us. And if you've already chosen something, they don't have to act out and try and earn that because they've already been chosen, just like we have. Then we looked at adoption, that we were chosen by God, but not just 
just, we were just chosen. We were chosen to be adopted into his family as children. And the image used in the New Testament is the image of a son. Now, I know that's a male image, but there's a point in that. And that is that in, under Roman law, if you were adopted as a son, you got the full right of a natural-born son. And that's how, how the, the hereditary line went through the son. But if you were an adopted son, you were then equal to a natural-born son. And so us adopted as sons into God's family, we are suddenly equal with the natural son, if you will, Christ. We have suddenly been pulled into Christ and we can relate to God the Father like Christ can relate to him because we are in him. God is now our Father. Jesus you know, even taught his disciples to pray. When they came to him said, Lord, how do we pray? How did he start? Well, you start by saying, our Father. And so we stand alongside Christ almost as our big brother, if you will, in the faith and actually can go to God the Father in him and say, you are our Father, and we can relate to God as Father, which is an incredible, freeing, releasing thing, because we've been chosen by a loving Father to be one of his children, and he loves us and adores us as one of his children. And if any of your parents here, you all know that. You see them, they just adore their kids, period, because they're their kids. And it's the same with us. We are loved and adopted into God's family and he is our father. And again, that, 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 that breaks against our desire to prove ourselves to him because we've got nothing to prove. We don't have to earn being someone's son. We're all sons and daughters of someone. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to be good. We just are. We are their children. I am my mum and dad's son. And that will never change. Then we, look, we went on and looked at redemption and forgiveness. And the image here in the New Testament was the image um, that... They, Paul pulled it from the Old Testament, the image of slavery in the book of Exodus, where the, the, the God's people were in slavery to a tyrant, Pharaoh, in Egypt, and they couldn't get out, they couldn't get away. This tyrant had him under their boot, and they were locked into a lifetime of bondage and slavery from their birth till their death, and it was just an ongoing cycle, and they'd been like that for hundreds of years. And that's what the situation was. And, but then God sent uh, uh, the man to freedom, which was Moses. Moses turns up, let my people go. There are plagues. If you haven't seen you know, Ten Commandments or Prince of Egypt, watch them. You get the idea. Or you could just read Exodus. And, and you see the people are then freed from a tyrant. And God frees them because they couldn't free themselves. Paul takes that image, applies that to us as New Testament believers and says, you are under a tyrant, you are under a lifelong bondage, but it's not to Pharaoh in Egypt, it's to sin. You are a slave to sin, it says in Romans. But in Christ we have been redeemed, brought out, freed from bondage and slavery, and we can know forgiveness and we are free to live a life of following Jesus. And that was one of the other blessings. And this comes through sacrifice, <coughs> the, the, um, the Israelites were free from Egypt through the sacrifice of a lamb. They had to kill the lamb as an act of faith, put the blood over the door. The angel of death passed over as the tenth plague, struck down the firstborn of all the families, unless there was blood, and they would pass over where we get the name. But we too have been free from slavery. How? Through his blood, it says in the passage, through Christ's death on the cross in our place for our sins. His resurrection from the dead has freed us and we accept that by faith, that we can know true freedom. And it's not a, something that you just enjoy in the future, it's something that we can live in now. We even looked at conviction and condemnation and the differences between the two. And actually, we can know freedom from sin in a tangible, real way, that, but when we do continue to stumble because we are fallen and we are imperfect, God convicts us by His Spirit. He doesn't condemn us because we're not under condemnation, Romans 8.1. He convicts us, we deal with it, we move on. We can know that continual forgiveness 
from God the Father. So we have removal of shame, removal of guilt, and we can actually live a life of freedom, which is another wonderful blessing. And the final thing we kind of looked at last time was how God's plan was to draw all things together in Christ. When um, everything fell apart, um, Genesis chapter 3, there's sin, everything was shattered. Man's relationship with God was shattered. Man's relationship with um, woman was shattered. Man's relationship with work was shattered. He said, I'm gonna, you know, you're going to have to work hard now. It was, um, women were, it was their relationship with children was shattered in childbirth. Everything was broken. God said, I'm going to pull it all together. I'm going to fix it up and I'm going to sum it up in Christ. I'm going to reconcile all things together and they're all going to be summed up and pulled together in Christ. The grand story of the Bible is creation, everything's good, fall, everything goes wrong. Reconciliation, which is basically Genesis 4 to Revelation kind of 20, the rest of the story. And then you have consummation at the end where everything is pulled together, Revelation 21, 22, in Christ. And that is God's plan and he has revealed that. It's been a mystery. He has revealed that to the church because the church is God's people. All believers of all time will be pulled together in God. There will be the creation will be made new um, and we will dwell on that and be with God together. And the actual, the lesson of Ephesians actually starts working that out. It talks about the Jew and the Gentiles. It talks about man and woman. It talks about slaves and masters and actually that reconciling that is happening even now that will one day be fully uh, pulled together. So that's kind of where we've come from so far. We've done quite a lot, haven't we? Now you say it like that, you think, man, we've done that. We've only done like, you know, 10 verses. So let's look at what we're going to um, do today. Let's read the whole passage and I'll zero in on the, um, the last verse. 1 verse 3. Be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we require possession of it, to the praise of his glorious grace." Now, we're just going to focus in on verses 11 to 14 today. Remember the them and us. If we read that passage, Paul actually talks about the them and us that he brings together. First of all, he talks about we. In him, we have obtained an inheritance. That we is referring to Jewish believers. That's, so Paul is one of those. He's saying, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who um, works all things according to his will. So that we, that's again, those Jewish believers, who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his, his glory. Then it goes on to say, in him you. Now that's Paul referring to the people in the church that he's writing to who would be Gentile believers. 
they would not have the Jewish background, they would not have, have that kind of ethnicity, they would be Greeks, non-Jews, and he's saying you, you also, so there's that connecting, there's the we and, and the you coming together. When you heard of the, um, of the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, and believed in him, was sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our, there's the word, our inheritance. So we have the we and the you coming together in an hour. So the who that Paul is talking about is the Jews and the Gentiles coming together. Now the Jews, they were the descendants of, you've got Abraham, who God came to in Genesis chapter 11, and promised a great promise about your descendants be like the stars uh, in the sky, sand on the seashore. He had a son, Isaac, that was promised. Miraculous son. Isaac then had two sons, and one was called Jacob. And Jacob then had twelve sons, um, who were represented the twelve tribes of Israel. Jacob's actual name was changed to Israel. And he had twelve sons, which become the twelve rising. And those, the descendants of those are the, were the Jewish people. They were the ones who went into captivity in Egypt. God brought them out, land, etc., etc., and that's where they are, and, and Paul was one of those. I think he was from the tribe of Benjamin, even. So we've got the Jews. The Gentiles were those who weren't. That's quite a simple one. If you were either a Jew or a Gentile, there was a very easy distinction. If you weren't a Jew, you were a Gentile. Most of us, I imagine, Gentiles. And this a huge cultural, ethnic divide. The Jews they were considered there were places in the temple that they literally just couldn't go. It was actually reserved for, for the Jews, chosen people. And, uh, and the Jews um, kind of saw themselves as that. They were, God had called them as their people, and, but they had got to a point where they were It was just us. And you actually see that in Acts chapter 10. God as a Jew. Jesus as Messiah and said, I want to break out of this and we're going to go to the Gentiles. He gives him a vision on the house and then he sends him to Cornelius's house. And even God speaking miraculously by giving him a vision, sending someone to him, that he said, by the way, someone's going to come and knock on your front door. Go with him. He goes with him and even as he gets to the door, he, there's a hesitation of going in and actually being with Gentiles. So it's an ingrained thing that they were, they were against. So the Jews saw themselves as chosen people, the Gentiles were outside that, but if you read your Old Testament with, um, with eyes of actually what you've learned is light of the new, you can see the fact God's plan was always to bring the Jews and Gentiles together. You see in the line, even in the line of Christ, you have people named who were non-Jews. You have Ruth, the story of Ruth, she was a Moabite. She was outside the covenant people of God, yet she was brought in in a wonderful act of kind of redemption and mercy and grace. And then she is listed in the line of Christ. So there was one of the, she's either the grandmother or the great great grandmother of David, who then in turn is the, in the line of Christ, if you read the, the genealogy. So God called that. We even have Rahab, the prostitute who, who sheltered the spies as they were taking the promised land, gets brought into the covenant people. Again, another. Another woman outside the covenant of faith brought in. You read your Psalms, you read Isaiah, and you have these phrases about actually God says to me, you will be a light to the Gentiles. You, you will shine that light and you will be an example of them, not in an exclusive way, but actually in a way that beckons them to, to come to know Jesus. But the, in some ways the Jews had lost sight of that. And then you get that the Spirit coming at Pentecost, the church growing, and God wanting to push through those barriers, which were his ultimate plan. 
But what Paul's writing to was a place of actually of, of division at the time, and, and it, it was problems. Even in Acts 6, there was even the division distribution, distri- distribution of food among the widows. There was a divide between the Jewish ones and the Greek ones, and there were complaints coming up. Um, even in the council, after Paul, uh, Peter had gone to the Cornelius' house and priest, and the spirit fell, ironically the spirit fell, he didn't lay hands on it. If you read the account, there's no laying hands on it because he couldn't touch them. They were unclean. So God sovereignly, just, the spirit just fell on those who were there. They all got saved, filled the spirit, speaking in tongues. They then call a council in Jerusalem. They're like, what are we going to do about this? We hadn't expected them to get saved. And they had to kind of work it through. And actually, you know, they've been saved. They're full of the spirit. They've received it. And so they brought them in. Um, and later, if you read um, the book of Galatians, what Paul writes in there is he's attacking the, this, this kind of legalistic movement where the Jews, Jewish believers are saying, if you're a Gentile and you've been saved, that's fine, but you've still got to comply to Jewish laws. And Paul is charging and saying, no, you don't. You've been saved by faith. You don't have to. You don't have to kind of do the extra external things. It's all about faith and trust in Christ now. And even Peter gets sucked into that and removes himself. And it's, there's, a, there's a really kind of scary bit where it says, Paul says, I had to confront Peter to his face over his sin because he had removed himself from the Gentile believers and was just hanging out with the Jewish ones because he'd got sucked into this illegalism of how we should um, live our life. And so it was a massive issue back then of, of a cultural divide between the Jews and the Gentiles. But the irony is it's no different today. We may have, a different, we may have different ones and call it different names, but this kind of cultural divide that we find, the kind of them and us, still exists today. I, even just in recent history, We've had it on a national level. We remember the Holocaust um, as part of World War II, the, 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 the extermination of a people group, the systematic wiping out of a people group, which numbered into the millions, which, which was actually the Jewish nation. That was systematically done. We even see in Rwanda, in Africa, where tribal lines led to genocide of just people because they were a different ethnic group. They were a different tribe. And so there was a systematic extermination of, the, of, of the, the people who weren't like us. We want to wipe them out. But you even see it on personal levels, even right up to date. In the last few weeks, I, I, check, I check BBC Sport fairly often, um, and uh, you know, just to check what's going on in the world of sports. I'm a big fan, but there's two stories that have come up recently all about racism. John Terry, the England captain, has been accused, allegedly, of using racist language against uh, an opponent that his team were playing, uh, police look into it, etc, etc. But it's come up right today at the highest levels of our national sport. And there's a big fuss. Even I also read um, golf, I don't follow, but I, I saw the headline as I was preparing this, clicked on it. Um, Tiger Woods' caddy, former caddy, um, was, was caught or accused of, of using racist language. And he actually apologised, I think, um, for that. But it's right there right there in the highest levels of that game. And the irony is, (coughs) it hasn't changed. We read about it in here and thinking, well, you know, Jew-Gentile thing, that was very old, very archaic. But actually, it's still prevalent for us today. It just comes in different forms. And what Paul is saying, actually, what was once them and us is now become our. What was once, you know, you're on that side, I'm on this side. God has brought us together. That reconciliation we've got creation for reconciliation, consummation, is happening and God is drawing all people to himself and it's regardless of your background, your ethnicity, your economic status, all these things, God is pulling them together and they can only be fixed through Christ. 
They cannot be fixed through just dialogue of man, although that will have some effect. It can't be fixed just through conferences and putting out um, equal opportunities manuals. It's only brought together in Christ because only Christ deals with the fundamental problem. And the fundamental problem is our ultimate alienation from God and alienation to one another through sin. And only the person who can deal with that is Christ through his death and resurrection. And so Paul is saying, actually, we may be divided by culture, which is a big thing, but actually we are now together. It becomes our, even though you're a Gentile and he, I'm a Jew, Paul was saying, we have come together and we can be made into one person, one new man in Christ. He's going to go on to expound this in the church Altogether, because the walls have been broken down through Christ, because God, he has dealt with the ultimate problem, which is our sin. Let's, that was the who. Let's look on to the our, um, the how now, particularly. Um, there are three, three quick things there. How was God going to do this? First thing, it was his plan and his good pleasure. It says, according to his purpose, the counsellor was willing, verse 11. It was God's overall plan to create a nation, the Jewish nation, to then fill that nation with his spirit in terms of making them believers, we see that, then there would be Jewish and Gentile believers together. That was his plan. That's how it would work out chronologically. That is what God wanted to do. And that plan would come through the preaching of the gospel of truth, it says. The gospel of your salvation, the word of truth. The focus is, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is how it's going to come about. Paul says uh, all this is, a, is an issue, but it's going to come together through increasing Christ. We could sum up the gospel in kind of four words. God, man, Christ, response. God creates us. Everything's good. Man, what do we do? We rebel, we muck it all up. Genesis 3, and we've been living with the consequences ever since. Christ comes, lives a perfect life, dies a death in our place, rises from the dead, ruling and reigning victorious, offering faith, and then we have our response. How are we going to respond to that? And through this word of truth, is how it's going to come about. And it was God's good pleasure to do it like this. It was all God's plan. It wasn't an accident that Christ came when he, when he did. It wasn't an accident that he died on the cross and he rose from death. It wasn't like God thinking, man, I got that wrong, I better raise him back to life and we'll have another run at this. It was all planned out through uh, prophesied, shadowed through the Old Testament, brought to light in the New Testament. And that was God, how God was going to do it. He was then going to bring the Holy Spirit, which he had promised... from from the beginning in the um, Old Testament you see it foreshadowed the Spirit would come on individuals at different times different places even Moses comments right back in Exodus oh would it be great if God's Spirit was on all people all people and you see it in the prophets um, in Ezekiel in Joel um, actually that one day in the the last days I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh all flesh Jew and Gentile male and female young and old and even when Peter preaches at Pentecost he says this is what the prophet Joel spoke about this is what he promised the spirit would come on all of us and um, we see that in Acts 10 when it falls on um, Cornelius and his household that it comes to not only Jew um, but to Gentiles and actually Paul writes in Galatians 3 that actually it's evidence the fact that the, the Gentiles have been brought into it, the evidence that they have been brought into um, this kind of covenant of faith is that they have the Holy Spirit. That's the evidence. That's what he says. It says in um, uh, Galatians 3, 13 and 14, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by coming a curse for us. For it's written, Cursed everyone who hangs on a tree. So that in Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. That was the purpose, that the promised Holy Spirit would come on all and we would all be incorporated into Christ. And then there would be a sealing. It says there at the end, 
We were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit and this is a wonderful, if not painful, image. It is the image of, of ownership of something like they would brand a slave or cattle. So to, to show that the slave belonged to the master or the cattle belonged to the rancher or the farmer, they would, a brand would be in a particular shape, they would heat it up and they would sear it into the flesh so it couldn't go out and that was a mark of ownership. That, that's how you would know that that cow belonged to you or that person was part of your kind of slave. And we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. And the point of that was it, it showed ownership it also showed protection because it was again it protected you against theft. You couldn't be taken off somewhere else. They couldn't just take the cow off somewhere else because there was a mark of ownership on it. You come on and say that doesn't belong to you because of the brand of the mark on it that belongs to so and so over there. So it was actually a mark of protection, and we have received this Holy Spirit as a mark of ownership. God saying, I am yours, but also a mark of protection. No one can take you. It says that, and Jesus says, no one can take you out of my hand. No, I've got you. I've got you. you no, one, no, one can, no one can take you out. You are mine. I have chosen you. But it also comes as a deposit guaranteeing something, guaranteeing an inheritance. If you've ever bought a house, it is a long and stressful process. But there becomes a point where you have to <coughs> give a deposit um, for the house um, to pay it all off and you, you give that money as a deposit guaranteeing that one day you will pay it all off and you will take kind of complete ownership and the Holy Spirit is our guarantee our deposit that one day we will acquire it completely acquire the possession of all that God has for us completely and it's interesting that that, that, that language of deposit and guarantee is only ever used by Paul in reference to the Holy Spirit that is the one thing that we have as our deposit. How do you know you're going to acquire what God has for you? How do you know you're going to see him one day face to face? How do you know you're going to dwell on the new heavens and the new earth, in the new Jerusalem and see all those things? The way you know is because you have received the Holy Spirit. That's the way. That's the way that you know that you have that in you. You have that. Your salvation is secure. You know that your future and your, your eternity is secure in him because you have received the Holy Spirit. And that is the same for all believers throughout the world, through whatever different cultural, ethnic background they come from, that, that we have all received the same Holy Spirit. Peter even preached that at Pentecost. What did he say? He said, they said to him, he preached that sermon, which was a cracker of a sermon, because 3,000 people responded. And they said to him, what do we do? What do we do? And he says, believe, uh, repent, be baptised in water, and receive the Holy Spirit. Sometimes referred to as the Peter package. Receive the Holy Spirit. That's what you're to do. And being filled with the Holy Spirit, being full of the Holy Spirit, is our deposit, our guarantee, our, 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 our thing that's going to make sure we know where we're going. It's only a small fraction of what we'll one day receive, but that's the one thing that we are to hold on to with everything we've got, being men and women filled with the Spirit. It's something we should desire. It's something we should seek after. It's not something we should just think, yeah, yeah, oh, we, you know, we have a one crazy charismatic experience at one time in one meeting. But actually, it's an ongoing kind of life experience. It says in Ephesians, oh, it says in, we're going to look at that, aren't we? In Ephesians, we'll get to Ephesians five. Do not be drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the, the scholars tell us, if you look at the Greek, the, the sense of the verb, which we can't get in the English, is be filled and keep being filled. It's that con present continuous, they say, 
So it's, yes, we be filled, but we keep being filled. It's a lifestyle of being filled with the Holy Spirit. So that's the how God is going to bring these together. And the last one, the why, which actually brings us full circle to where we started this passage, it's all for the praise of his glory. Ironically, that's how it ends. The last bit of verse 14, to the praise of his glory. And if you go back to the very beginning of verse 3, it's blessed be, or some people pray and translate that, praise be. But it's all to God's glory and God's grace. It's all about him. It's all about worshipping God, giving praise to Jesus. And everything we've looked through from the election that wasn't based on us, purely based on God's mercy, love and grace, his adoption to be our Father in heaven, our redemption and forgiveness, being freed from the bondage of slavery, that we can walk free of that and live a life free of that. Nothing uh, has to control us and we are free at the end to the final effects of sin. We will one day be completely free from that. The final effects being death. We will one day be through that and be with Jesus forever. We are incorporated into the church, reconciled. This is God's great plan that we will be one people before him forever. We have received the Holy Spirit that is our guarantee, our promise of the inheritance. We've been sealed. There's that branding, that sealing that goes on that we know we're his. I mean, sometimes people ask me, how do I know that I believe all this stuff? How do you know that Jesus is the Lord, that what you're doing is right? All I can say to them is, I know because I know because I know. I mean, that's it. How do you know? Well, I know because I know. God has put something in me by his spirit that whatever comes, I know that I know that actually what God has called me to do. I know that Jesus is Lord. He is my saviour. I will one day stand before him face to face. And whatever comes and hits me, I know that I know that I know that God has called me to this and that one day I will stand before him. My salvation is secure in him. Not based on me and how smart I am and how much I read, but actually that God said, I will keep you, I will seal you, I will brand you, I will protect you, I will give you this deposit that will guarantee your future. And that's how we can know. And the whole point of that is that one day we will, be, we will just be overcome with praise to God, just like Paul was there. That was, you know, we've, we've delved right into that. But basically that, I think it was Paul just, you know, I don't know what his scribe might have been doing. Sometimes they wrote with scribes. You know, he probably started, okay, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to the saints in the church of Ephesus. Okay, grace and peace to you. And then he just kind of got, praise be to the God. Of, and the poor scribes probably, <laughs> maybe they had shorthand back then. I don't know. But he, just, he was just overcome with praise and worship um, to God, which is just interesting is why we do our meetings this way. I, I felt quite strongly and when we talked to some of the guys that when we came to do um, Real Life Church Sunday meetings, how are we going to do them? And I felt strongly, I wanted to put the word up front to put something into us of the truth of God that out of the back of that, we all want to shout and praise. And that's why we, we put the truth in and then we hand it over to the Holy Spirit and some gifted musicians and say, let's just praise God and let it all come out. Let it all come out. And that's what we're going to do now. We're going to move on to that. But before we do that, a little bit of application and um, response. Um, we are going to get around to praying for people to be filled with the Spirit today. I don't care if you've never been filled or you've been filled a thousand times. We're going to do it again and we're going to pray for people to be filled with the Spirit. We're going to spend some time worshipping. We're going to lift Jesus up as we always do because it's always about him. It's all about him. And we're going to honour him and give him glory. And then at some opportune moment... Who knows when? It'll probably get very messy and very chaotic. Um, but we're going to start praying for people, and who knows what's going to happen? I'm quite excited. I was praying this morning, and I kind of you almost didn't know what to pray for. Lord, just come. That's kind of what I got. Just come, Holy Spirit, and then I'll see what happens after that. So that's what we're going to do today. Out of the back of that, what I'd love you guys to do, um, by way of application, 
is think, think about now, think about your kind of daily routine. Monday morning, Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning, you kind of have a daily morning routine. You get up, um, at some point the alarm will probably go or a child will cry or something will happen and you will, you know, you will rise from the dead and you'll be like, I'm awake and the clock will say, a, you know, a certain time, probably an hour that you don't want to be up and it will be dark outside. And you'll go through a morning routine. I want you to think of something that you do pretty much every morning. It might be something like you, you stand kind of in this state of sort of fuzziness waiting for the kettle to boil so you can have that first caffeine hit of the morning. Uh, you know, hopefully most of you shower or, you know, in the morning or clean your teeth, those kind of things. Um, but I want you to think of one of those things that you do kind of every morning. And when you do it this week, I'd love you just to take 30 seconds and pray that the Holy Spirit will come and fill you for that day. Kind of just think, what is, what is my one thing? What do I do? For me, I know I, I generally clean my teeth and I kind of, mm, that would be a good time. Or as you, you, know, you sit down and drink, or you know, even as you spend time, if you know you read your Bible in the morning. Just think about the one thing and think, okay, this week I'm going to pray every day that I would be a man or woman filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, you, could, you could start praising God for some of the things we've looked at over this passage. You even could read that passage again. I don't mind. Even if you just think, well, the time I've got is just to stand still and ask. And I just feel that there's a sense that God, Jesus says, isn't it, you don't have because you don't ask. And, and it's in Luke where it says, actually, how much more would the Father give those to the Holy Spirit, those who ask him? He talks about, you know, you wouldn't, if your child you asks for a you know, piece of bread, you don't give him a stone. If you ask for a, you know, a fish, you don't give him a scorpion. You know, your father wants to give you good gifts. How much more do you want to give you the Holy Spirit to those who are? So I'd love that to be our kind of application throughout the week. Um, and I don't know what's going to happen Wednesday night, but maybe we'll do a bit more of it Wednesday night. But uh, we're going to pray now after we've had some time worshipping. But I'd love you guys this week to um, be people who pray for the Holy Spirit. Because the point is, being full of the Holy Spirit is the only thing that's going to break down some of these barriers. It's the only thing that's going to break down how we approach other people, how we look at other people, people who are different to us, people who look different, sound different, different ages, different stages, different backgrounds. And the only way that we can bring that together and be one person before Christ, one church, one body, is with the Holy Spirit in us. You know, if we try and try and try but never ask the Holy Spirit, I think we'll fail. If we try and be good people and try and be PC and try and be equal ops, we'll fail. We need to be men and women full of the Holy Spirit with genuine love in our hearts for those that God brings to us, those we meet in our workplaces and our families and our homes, our kind of recreation, our neighbours. We need to be men and women full of the Spirit. Amen? Amen. Stand up. Let's worship Jesus together.